Good morning, E3. I am Pastor Mike Eversree. It's great to see you all today. And I actually want to begin this morning with one of my favorite story tropes of all time, which is homecomings. You know the tales. A protagonist stranded in a distant land must transverse brutal conditions and impossible odds to make it back where? Make it back home. That's right. Such stories seemingly work every single time. They draw tears, they make us laugh, they make us cry, they make us feel, which makes a lot of sense, I believe. We all, as human beings, have this idea of home, a place, person, or feeling that we use to direct and that shapes our lives, how we live in this world. And we've also all known homesickness, have we not? That longing for a home that we've lost, that we're distant from, or maybe that we've never known, but have always wanted. Home simply is one of the most universal, powerful concepts in our human experience. And our longing for and pursuit to gain or regain our home can empower us to do the most heroic, the most villainous, and the most dramatic feats, can it not? And in storytelling, what fascinates me is that seemingly there's really two main paths that this trope about homecoming seems to take. Apart from the stories about animals making it home, which for some reason was like a huge thing in the 90s. I still don't really understand this. Uh, my wife loves this movie, Fly Away Home, which y'all, I do not understand. <laughs> I hate geese. I do not like geese. I do not want them to come home. I want them to go away. But I digress. Anyways, I love you, Ricky, but I do digress. <laughs> These tales, other than those strange movies, generally take two paths, differentiated primarily by the impact that the homeward journey has on its characters, the transformation they must go through to make it back home. You see, on one hand, there are stories about people who, in fighting to get home, lose themselves. They actually lose how their home shaped them, transforming instead to reflect the hostile environments that they transverse through. A great example of this is The Way Back. This is a gnarly movie, and I do not recommend it if you are in any way squeamish. But it depicts the journey of several people who, after escaping a Siberian gulag, walk 4,000 miles through Siberian wildernesses, deserts, and eventually the entire Himalayas to make it to India and ultimately escape the Soviet Union. A trek that often reveals not the best, but the worst of the characters, costing them their ideals, even their humanity at time, as they strain to escape and to get back home. That's the dark path. But you see, there's also this opposite path that I tend to like more, maybe you'll agree. Tales where the sojourner actually comes to a greater understanding of home and who they are through their journey back to it, where their longing motivates them not to lose themselves, but to discover what home really means, who they are. They learn to refine and live by home's values to a greater degree through its absence, more so than they have they had never left at all. And of course, my favorite example of this one, E.T. 
Y'all, this movie is a banger. This movie rules. This is Spielberg's masterpiece about an extraterrestrial who gets left behind on Earth and who in a journey home befriends this kid, Elliot, falls in love with Reese's Pieces, gets hounded by adults who always are terrified of him, and almost dies. Yet what makes this movie profound is that despite all of that, E.T. never loses sight of what his home means, does he not? He never loses sight of its values, who it calls E.T. to be, how it calls E.T. to live. This journey not only leads E.T. back home, it also solidifies what home means. And I think the profound part, it even allows E.T. to share it with others longing for it. Through E.T.'s friendship, spoiler alert, Elliot, a fellow homesick traveler, comes to find home again as well. It's a beautiful story. It makes you cry every time. Who's with me? <sighs> if you didn't say yes, then um, get out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> two paths, two paths, right? About longing for home and how homecoming journeys shape and direct our lives, positively or negatively, based on what we perceive home is and how we go about getting back to it. And it's these concepts of home and homecoming that are actually going to guide us today as we finish chapter three of the book of Philippians, which we've been covering in our summer series more and more. You see, for Paul, where we believe our home is and how we journey back to it matters a great deal for disciples in his mind, especially as we navigate living within the human nations, kingdoms, and empires of our world, into which we are born and live. See, in today's text, Paul's going to challenge us to reflect on some things. What does it mean to be Christians living in a nation or empire like America, for example? Is this nation our home? Should it direct our attitudes, worldviews, and behaviors? Or should we be longing for a different home somewhere else? And if so, how should our homecoming journey back to it transform how we live our lives? That's Paul's focus in today's section of Philippians. That's where we're going. And if that sounds scandalous to you, Got some bad news. Anyway, <laughs> to recap, last week, let's briefly recap. We saw that Paul introduced the focus of chapter three, which is tribalism. How we as human beings create and act according to group identities. And Paul warned against tribalism. In particular, he warned against Christians allowing tribal identities to bleed into the church, into the gospel, by elevating our personal preferences or our specific cultural identities to the level of gospel essentials, thus creating barriers to church entry for others, barriers to Christ's story and the grace of God because the people don't match our little tribal sex. And now Paul turns to a different impact of human tribalism on the church, specifically how they can lead us as Christians to divide our loyalty to Christ and ultimately in doing so undermine our Christian witness to the world. And like I said, this is a section that is incredibly subversive, but it's one that has enamored me 
for years. It's one of my favorite series of verses in the entire New Testament. We pick up in verse 15 where Paul writes, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So to counter tribalism, Paul calls for spiritual maturity within the church, which Paul defines broadly as giving one's full allegiance to King Jesus Christ alone. They do that by trusting God's wisdom and adopting Jesus's humility, especially in these gray conflict areas of this life, which Paul models here. He acknowledges unconcern that some in the community may disagree with him over non-essentials. He's like, I don't care about that. Instead, he focuses on how such differences are managed in Christian community. How do we respond when there are these differences over non-essentials? And Paul says, don't let the vision and pride over non-essentials produce backsliding amongst you. Instead, embrace diversity and look to disciples who've humbly grown to give their allegiance to Christ alone. Imitate them instead of what you see in the surrounding world as you navigate these gray, ambiguous areas of life. Maturity is Paul's answer. And he considers growing this critical for a specific reason. Verse 18, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So, apparently, honing this capacity to give our allegiance to Christ alone matters because some live as enemies of the what? The cross. And I want you to notice that nuance I just highlighted. Does it say enemies of God? No, he says specifically, he specifies enemies of the cross. In other words, what Paul's getting at is that they don't reject Christ, but rather the importance of his humility, self-sacrifice, and other focused love displayed on the cross. They downplay the cross specifically as the filter for the Christian life, which Paul flat out rejects. For Paul, the cross and what it symbolizes for how we are called to live, especially in relationship, is everything. But Paul says they want nothing to do with what the cross says about how we should live. Instead, they'd rather focus on earthly things, worship their appetites in glory in what Christ has revealed to be shame. Now, in Philippians, what Paul's getting at is that these are Christians who look at the cross and then said, actually, I kind of prefer the Roman way of life. You know, the gluttony, the status, the hierarchy, the power over all this self-sacrificial business. He's talking about people who claim Christ, but worship what benefits them, who have backslid back into those Roman values of power and status, accumulating earthly successes, thinking that they're glorious, despite Christ revealing that they are hollow. And where does Paul say such a path leads? Leads to destruction, right? It leads to harm 
for themselves and others. You see, altogether, what I think Paul's getting at here is he's laying out this important poem. We must hone our ability to give our allegiance to Christ alone because we'll always be tempted to reject what the cross represents in favor for easier, more self-beneficial worldly values. But what happens when we do that? Well, we end up claiming Christ, but neglecting his cross. We end up claiming Christ, but living for ourselves, giving our allegiance not to Christ crucified, but to worldly values, mistreating others and gaining them and building our lives on what fades, not what's eternal. In pursuing what's impermanent as our God, we make what's impermanent our only reward in life. And y'all, that is a path of tragedy, is it not? That is a path of destructive disaster for ourselves or others because those things fade. And then what are we standing on? Nothing. Altogether, I think Paul believes that this is going to be a constant temptation for us as disciples living in the human nations and kingdoms of this world. And apparently he especially believes this is going to be a temptation for these Philippians. Hold on to that thought. Because first, he offers an alternative path. Verse 20, but our citizenship is where? In heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, y'all, this text is revolutionary. It is explosive. I want to walk through for a little bit why I say that. You see, this word citizenship in Greek appears nowhere else in the New Testament, which should always be a clue for us to hone in on why Paul wants to use it specifically in one letter or to one group. It's a civic term for legally belonging to a specific people, nation, or empire, being a citizen of a kingdom. More so, the way that it's used here, it implies doing so, being a citizen of a specific kingdom, as a colony of that kingdom within a foreign land, as living exiles, a community of exiles living far away from home in an alien territory. And citizenship carried very specific connotations for the Philippian church. I want you to recall all the way back to week one, the cultural context of the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi held the rare status as a, who, actually wait, who remembers? Philippi was what? A Roman what? A Roman colony. Do you get, I don't know, crowns in heaven. What do we say? <laughs> a Roman colony, right? Roman colony, and this was really important. This was the only Roman colony that Paul visited, which in the Roman Empire meant that it was considered an extension of Rome itself. It was understood as the very soil of Italy planted abroad. And being a Roman citizen in a Roman colony brought privilege, and it meant that you were saturated with Roman culture and values. Now, I want you to think for a second. I want you to turn on that analytical braid. What was the purpose of Roman colony? To extend Rome, right? It was to extend Rome. You didn't make a colony so that you could one day go live in Rome. The purpose of a colony was to take Rome into the world, to be a beachhead for Roman culture, values, and its way of life, pushing into non-Roman lands. 
Thus, a Roman citizen in a Roman colony, where were the Philippians supposed to find their citizenship? In Rome, yes. And what was their purpose? Why'd they exist? To spread Rome, right? And who were they supposed to give their full allegiance to? Rome and Caesar. In Philippi, citizenship meant one thing, living on Roman soil with Roman values and privileges, spreading the Roman Empire. It declared that Caesar's empire and its purposes were your sole source of identity, values, loyalty. It motivated your entire life. But Paul takes citizenship, this word that is very charged in this Philippian context, and he applies it not to Rome, not to Caesar, but to where? To Jesus' heavenly kingdom. Then he goes a step further. You see, in the Greek, he calls Jesus Savior. And you might ask, oh, doesn't Paul call Jesus Savior all the time? Well, yes, he does. But in the Greek, this specific version of the word Savior, soter, is the political version of Savior, which Paul doesn't use at all. To understand what I'm talking about, it's like the difference between calling someone a leader versus the president. Those have very different connotations, do they not? Who wants to guess who else was called Soter in the Roman Empire? One guy, Caesar. Paul has been subtly pushing up against the influence of Roman culture throughout this letter. He knows it's tempting to slide back into Roman values of hierarchy, power, status, and wealth in this hotbed of Roman imperial nationalism. But here, Paul throws all subtlety out the window. He says, you may live in Rome, but you are not Roman citizens anymore. Your citizenship is in one place, and that's heaven. And Caesar may demand your allegiance, but who does it actually belong to? King Jesus, the real savior. That's it. Y'all, do you see how explosive this is? Can you imagine being a Roman citizen and Paul writes you this letter? Anybody. But what does being a citizen of heaven mean? And this is where this text, I think, gets really interesting. Verse 20, we're going to read it and read through the end of the section. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. You see, what Paul's talking about here is his ultimate view of history. Paul believed as a good first century Jewish person that history was heading somewhere. That is, it was heading towards this thing called new creation. God's promise that at the end of his story, God will renew all things, including this world and us as part of this new creation movement through something called resurrection, which I know you guys have heard of. New creation and resurrection, the ultimate direction of God's story, were Paul's hope. They meant everything to him. And personally, Both are very different visions of God's story and history than I learned growing up in church. And maybe you'll relate to this. You see, I was taught that Christian hope was about escape, 
through Jesus, escaping this wicked physical world to God's good spiritual world after I die, from the bad place to the good place, right? And as part of that, one day God would look at what he created, this physical world, and he would go, yikes! And then he would throw it all in the dumpster and teleport us up out of there. Did anyone else get a narrative like that growing up? However, if you read this text, you'll recognize that that's not what Paul believed. He believed that Christ is returning where? Here, to this world at the end of God's story. Not to throw it away, not to throw it in the trash, but to rescue it, to restore it, to redeem it, to make it new. In other words, Paul's hope isn't to escape. It's in God coming here to transform our broken bodies and redeem his good world like he always intended. Growing new creation within the old. This movement of God to reclaim his good creation that's already underway through Jesus the Savior and that will one day be fully realized here on earth as it is where? In heaven. And living under that inaugurated new creation reality, that's being a citizen of heaven. Again, what's the purpose of a Roman colony? It's not to escape Rome one day. It's to bring Rome to the world. Thus, being a citizen of God's new creation colony isn't about escaping to heaven someday. It's about bringing the future glorious end of God's story into the present through how we live now. It's about existing here as people who give our full allegiance to who? King Jesus, living under his reign as a beachhead of his heavenly kingdom on earth. And this is critical. If our hope is escaping earth, then we stop doing kingdom work in earth. It's going in the trash one day anyway. Why bother? But if our hope is that our king is returning here to restore us, to heal what's gone wrong, to make justice roll like a river on earth as it is in heaven, then that keeps our eyes heavenward. But where does it keep our hands? Working here. This reminds us that we're called to create a colony of heaven here in the midst of these earthly empires in which we live as exiles. That Caesars may claim our loyalty, but it belongs to one person, our Savior, King Jesus. Paul says you may live in empires calling you to be extensions of their values, but they don't hold your citizenship anymore. Your citizens loyal to a different king, colonists, exiles, and foreigners with different values shaped by one thing, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Humility, self-sacrifice, service, other-focused love. You belong to a heavenly home where love reigns and new creation blossoms. That's what brought to mind these stories of homecoming, longing, seeking, and finding home. Home is so powerful, right? We long for it, and naturally, we try to find it in the nation, empire, and culture into which we are born and live. We're planted in them. We get shaped by them. We become citizens of them, adopting their values and their worldviews. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. But in that, 
Paul sees two paths that we all must take at some point in our lives. On one hand, we can just never question that. We give it our allegiance and we let it drive our lives without a second thought. Or, on the other hand, eventually we find ourselves feeling that though born here, we don't fully feel at home in this place. And this can happen for a multitude of reasons. I think for some, that comes from learning that their home isn't what they thought it was. That the values they were taught aren't actually upheld. That the things are a little bit more complicated than the ideals that they used to believe. Maybe even broken. For others, it comes more directly through just experiencing injustice. At some point in their lives, they're just told or treated simply like they don't belong in this place they called home. There's countless examples with the core phenomena at the center. This sense that this place, America, or whichever kingdom we find ourselves in, isn't really our home. That we long for a homecoming to something bigger. And what Paul believes, what he would say to us, is that there's a reason that you feel that way. It's because it's not your home. Y'all, there are so many things about America that I am grateful for, that I love. I believe I am better off physically and my needs being met here than I would be almost anywhere else in the entire world, and I am grateful for that. But y'all, it is not our home. Paul is convicted that as Christians, there is a fundamental truth that though we are in these human empires, we were never meant to be of them. That we aren't meant to feel at home in how they operate, in their division, their hierarchies, their tribalism, their abuses of power and their claims upon our loyalty and the promises they give us that they can somehow save us. Paul's like, listen to that dissonance you feel because these kingdoms aren't heaven, their Caesars are not God, and they are not our home, y'all. We were created to be citizens of a new heaven and a new earth where Christ is king. That's our true home. That is it. Thus, Paul challenges us. I think he would speak directly to us today. He'd say, where is your home? Where is your citizenship? And does your life, your hope, how you treat others, does that reflect allegiance to that heavenly home and that heavenly king or to a human empire on earth? As we journey in exile, are we like E.T. bringing otherworldly values and attributes into this strange alien land? Or are we twisted by whichever wilderness we've been born into and stranded with him? Shaped by its fear, its brutality, its self-centeredness, its greed, its injustice. Do we embrace the cross and live out a fundamentally different life? Do we live out our future homecoming by letting God build a pocket of heaven here and now through us? Or do we reject the cross in favor of earthly empty comforts that fill our bellies but consume our souls. The church exists in Paul's mind for one purpose, and that is to provide an alternative kingdom path for human beings longing for God and looking for home. An alternative kingdom path that draws in the world by offering an alien, glorious way of life compared to the hollow pursuits of money, power, division, status, what's impermanent, that these earthly kingdoms obsess and fight over. We aren't here to think and operate like our world while just going to church on Sunday. Y'all, that doesn't set us apart. 
That doesn't shine before the nations like stars. Jesus doesn't need our singing, though I'm sure he likes it. Jesus wants our allegiance. He wants us to be his body, his hands and his feet doing his work here on earth. People who find their citizenship where? In heaven, in his kingdom alone, and live according to it with otherworldly hope, joy, peace, and love. People fully dedicated to his values, peacemaking, justice-seeking, building intimate relationships, and making God's heart known and active on earth as it is in heaven. Can I get an amen? So E3, where's our citizenship? Where can we grow more and more into our calling as a heavenly colony of kingdom exiles, a beachhead of redemption in our world? Because like, my, like Paul, my heart longs to be a community where people experience a homecoming, a foretaste of what one day God is going to do throughout the entirety of this cosmos, a foretaste of new creation and resurrection, new life here and now. Reflect on that as we sing this next song. Reflect.